There is no place so dark his love and grace cannot find you. There is no sin so heinous that he cannot reach you and refresh and renew you and restore your soul. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Over the last few Sundays, we have been looking at the life of David, and today brings this very brief study to a close. And so we're turning to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We've been in 1 Samuel in recent weeks, and today it's 2 Samuel chapter 11, and you'll find it on page 486 of the Church Bible, page 486, as we read the first five verses, and then one verse further into the chapter. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and with a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace and with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. And further on, verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Over these last couple of weeks, we've learned all sorts of things about David. We learned that in those early days, when David was on his own, when he was beginning to understand who God was, in isolation, in moments that are mundane, routine, and everyday, David was engaging with God. And God was teaching David what it meant to recalibrate and retune his deepest affections. Do you remember what we call the hinge verse in that passage of 1 Samuel 16? It was with these words. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. 
And God was more interested in the heart and mind and soul of David than he was how tall he was. Was he blonde or dark-headed? He wasn't interested in charisma. He was interested in character. And God had been shaping and fashioning and molding the character of David in those early days together. And last Sunday morning, we saw David and Goliath, where Goliath was large and in charge, but it did not impress David. Do you remember what we said? Goliath was determining the conditions of the battle, and he was determining how people should respond to his threats. And when young David appears, David in essence says this, I am more impressed with the love and grace and majesty of God than I am with Goliath. And now this morning as we come to 2 Samuel 11, 30 to 35 years have passed. David is at the pinnacle of his career. He has shown wisdom, justice, insight as a leader. Israel has expanded her borders by up to 60,000 square miles. He'd experienced numerous victories on the battlefield. Import-export was good. The economy was solid. David was at the pinnacle of his popularity. Amongst the religious leaders, absolutely. Amongst the civil and judicial branches of government, of course. Among tribal leaders, he had wealth, influence, power, the support of the nation. Now David was large and in charge. And if you've heard the phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely Because although David was popular, influential, all the power and wealth he could have, he was accountable to no one. No one. And David no longer was submitting and surrendering his life to the rule and reign of God, but he was surrendering his life to the seductive, addictive, enslaving power of sin. Notice how the passage begins. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And what was David doing? David was sitting back, letting others do the work. He was detached, a little aloof, the pinnacle of power and influence. David was to learn over the next nine or ten months that spiritual erosion is often slow and subtle and silent. You do not always see it coming. You do not always realize it when you're in the middle of it. And that's why it is appealing, seductive, enticing, addictive, and enslaving. And here was David with all the power of the known world at his fingertips and was enslaved to sin's appeal. David knew, of course, that adultery was not becoming. He was familiar with the commandments. We find him in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not commit adultery. 
You shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or his servants, or anything that belonged to him. So why did David not pay attention to the commandments? Why did he think he was the exception? Why did he think that large and in charge meant he could do whatever he liked? And of course the commandments were applicable to Israel as a nation. Of course they were applicable to other people, but not to him. He had a multiplicity of wives, several hundred concubines. And David is thinking and rationalizing in his own head, saying, another wife is not going to hurt me. It's not going to do anyone any harm. And when he sees Bathsheba, he surrenders and submits, no longer to the living God, no longer recalibrating and retuning his life into intimacy and growth and development with God. But slowly, subtly, silently, he was drifting. Please understand the significance of what I'm about to say. And it's this. That when David was in the midst of having an adulterous affair. It never dawned on him that it was sinful. Let me explain why. The rest of the chapter tells us this. That David noticing Bathsheba sent for his servant and said, who is this? Then David sends for Bathsheba. He has an affair with her. They discover she's expecting. And so David then sends to Joab, the commander in the field, for Uriah the Hittite, who was the husband of Bathsheba, and he sends for him to come back. And David is conspiring and manipulating, living in deception and denial. And when Uriah comes home, what does he do? He brings him to the royal palace. He wines and dines him under the pretense of wanting to know what's going on with the battle and how the army is doing. And David thought, if only I can get Uriah drunk, I will send him home. And over the next couple of days, Uriah will enjoy his children and his family and the comforts of home. But Uriah refuses and he sleeps just outside the city gate. And he refused because his closest friends were at the front of the line of battle. And he refuses. And when David hears this, of course he is frustrated, of course he's angry. He brings Uriah in for another night, wines and dines him, and sends him home again, and it doesn't work a second time. And David then takes it to the next level. And he sends Uriah back to the front line with a letter, and the letter is Uriah's own death warrant. He's carrying it in his pocket. Talk about deception, manipulation, abuse of power. It was all happening there. When Uriah turns up to Joab, he gives him the letter. Joab thanks him and Uriah goes back to being a soldier. And the letter tells him this. Send Uriah to the front where the fighting is at its fiercest. And when he is in the midst of battle, then pull back all the soldiers, leave him isolated, leave him vulnerable. And that's exactly what happened. And of course, he was killed. Towards the end of the passage, we read these words. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She mourned for him. 
Now let's begin to unpack this a little. David was seduced and surrendered to the belief that if only he could satisfy his appetite in this one area of his life, all would be well. David had, as you know, multiple wives, plenty of concubines. He realized he could satisfy himself in this area many, many times over. But he was captivated and addicted to sin. Please understand the subtlety of what's going on here. It is not always when we are facing our greatest challenges that sin comes along. Because when you are facing your greatest challenges and circumstance beyond your control, what is our instinctive response? Is to get on our knees and pray. And it's hard to believe that you are large and in charge. It's hard to believe you have all the power of the world at your fingertips when you are on your knees, profoundly dependent on God, leading and guiding and directing you. It's hard to be prideful. It's hard for pride to dominate your life when you're on your knees. But when you are large and in charge, when you have no accountability, when you can do whatever you like, when it feels that you are kingly, ordering this one to go this way and that one to go that way. And what had happened here was this. David was now becoming God. He was determining who should live and who should die, who he would have an affair with and who he wouldn't. That's how serious it had become. That's how addictive and enslaving sin is. And David could not see the infectious, toxic implications of sin. Folks, how often have we said on a Sunday morning that the temptation for us is to believe that sin is something we do. It's an activity, and it absolutely is that. But we forget not only is an activity, we forget what it does to us. That's what happens. We forget what it does to us. Now, when sin comes knocking at your door, It is consistent. It's appealing. It never gives up. And it will not be defeated easily. It will not. In fact, the Apostle Paul, recognizing it for all that the horror it brings, says this, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to this earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, put to death. Notice the language. It's not negotiate with it. It's not rationalize with it. It is put it to death once and for all. Flee from it. Get away from it. Immediately humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I cannot deal with this on my own. I need your supernatural strength to deal with this. That's what Paul is saying. That's what David forgot. He didn't forget it when he was up against Goliath. 
He didn't forget it for several decades, but now he has forgotten. And please hear this. When sin comes knocking at your door, Satan is far too clever to fill us with hatred for God. He simply fills us with forgetfulness of God. That's what was going on with David. If you had said to David during those nine or ten months, David, is the Lord your shepherd? He would have said, he is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green green pastures. He prepares a table before my enemies. He restores my soul. David would have signed up to that in a heartbeat, but he wasn't living it out in his life. Because slowly, surely, subtly, quietly, silently, He drifted from the things of God and had forgotten the goodness and the grace and the love of God. He had simply forgotten. That's why Paul says, put to death. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Deception, manipulation, conspiracy, cruelty, ultimately murder. His character is blasted. His peace vanishes. The foundations of his kingdom are in peril. And he treats, and please hear this, he treats his relationship with God with utter contempt. Can you imagine such a thing? With utter contempt. He's dismissive of God and his purposes and plans and his commands. In chapter 11, we read two words over and over again. David sent for his servant. David sent for Bathsheba. David sent to Joab. David sent for Uriah. David sends Uriah back. And David is moving all the pieces around the checkerboard and thinks he's getting away with it. But please understand this. Chapter 12 begins, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. David was no longer large and in charge. He wasn't sending anyone anywhere. At last, God was on the move and his hand was on David and he was about to bring the force of the deep, convicting, transforming power of God into the life of David once again. And David couldn't see it. He couldn't see it because in those months, David was wrestling and struggling with purity, integrity, authenticity. He abused his authority. He surrendered to his own destructive passions. He demeaned and exploited Bathsheba. He manipulated Joab. He shamelessly conspired to kill Uriah and sought to control everything and everyone determining who would die and who would live. And folks, if you think this was only a problem back then and it was only for David, please hear this. Some of our political leaders and Hollywood moguls have been in the news every day for the last 10 days for exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. 
Yesterday I was in a bookstore and I was stunned by what I saw. It was a Time magazine commemorative issue. And in the past, when Time magazine put out a commemorative issue, it's usually to do with the Pope or Mother Teresa or President Kennedy or President Reagan or President Obama, Albert Einstein. Current one at the moment is Thurgood Marshall, Supreme Court Justice. It came out about six or eight weeks ago, highlighting the incredible work he had accomplished as a Supreme Court Justice. And last week came the latest, and the latest was Hugh Hefner, who birthed and controlled Playboy magazine. He's now a cultural icon. He's to be looked up to as someone that we want to emulate. Can you believe that stuff? Turn on your television set this evening and flick through the channels and what was one soft porn is becoming our daily diet because our culture has submitted and surrendered to the appeal of sin because they know it sells. How crass is that? Time magazine wouldn't publish a magazine if it didn't sell, but it's become acceptable. It's become normal. That's how subtle, how enslaving, how addictive sin can become. But the good news is this. God did not stop there with David. And if you are here this morning and been feeling uncomfortable, please hear this. On this Sunday, this Sunday that begins a season of thanksgiving, we ought to give thanksgiving the chapter 2. 12 begins the way it does and the Lord sent Nathan because with Nathan came a word from God and it challenged David it didn't bring David to a point of remorse or regret although that was involved it brought him to a place where he was heartbroken in every sense through the convicting power of God himself and Nathan says to him, David, you are the man. You behaved this way. You're responsible and you have to face the consequences. In Galatians chapter 5, there's a spectacular verse that says this. Be sure your sins will find you out. God is not mocked. He is not mocked. But in the midst of it all, God in his love and grace enters once again into the life of David and wraps him in his arms and holds him close. And there's a passage in the Psalms that says this, he broke me in order to remake me. And that is what happens in chapter 12 where David is broken mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and then God carefully, lovingly, filled with grace, 
puts him back together. And David never goes back there again. His darkest moment is over. And if you are here this morning, if you're watching on television, if you're listening on the web, please hear this. There is no place so dark his love and grace cannot find you. There is no sin so heinous that he cannot reach you and refresh and renew you and restore your soul. And if you are here this morning struggling with a sin that needs to be dealt with, rejoice in the opening words, and the Lord sent Nathan because he refuses to give up on David. He will not walk away from David Because he saw in David a heart that was needing to be fashioned and renewed and molded once again. There is no better way to enter into a Thanksgiving week than look at the faithfulness of God. He is what majestic and transcendent glory, but imminent in love and grace. And it was because of God's faithfulness. It was because of God's consistency. It was because God would go the extra mile that David in the years ahead would once again be known as a man after God's own heart. And if you need a touch from him this morning, it may well be that you need to submit and surrender to the rule and reign of God as he takes those disordered affections and recalibrates and retunes and draws you back to himself. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your overwhelming, never-ending, life-giving, outrageous love. Father, speak to us through your word, encourage us in the week to come, and enable us, of all people, to be thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Music and Worship Arts Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Greenville presents Christmas at First, December 2nd in the Sanctuary, featuring a full orchestra and soloists from the Metropolitan Opera, New York City Opera, and regional favorites. Tickets are available for $10 per person or $20 per family. Visit firstpresgreenville.org for details.